All right, sweet. We are live, just going old school today. How are you guys doing? Well, you guys cannot be quiet today, okay? We're at church. It is Sunday morning. This is like the best day of the whole week, so... Uh, you guys got to talk to me today, okay? If something's resonating, give me some hallelujahs, give me some praise of the Lord's, okay? Um, you guys, summer, enjoying summer? Summer, yeah, the actual person, I like it. Is this on? Can you guys hear me? I also feel like this is not on. I don't know why, but that's okay. Well, let's, let's pray, and then we'll get into what we have today, okay? We need the Lord. So, God, we just come before you, and we thank you. Uh, Lord, we thank you that we can even have mics that could break. Uh, Lord, that we could have things, Lord, like this. It's, it's all blessings. It's all not necessary for us, Lord, yet you give it. We thank you for the air conditioning and the small things even within this room. Lord, we know the reality is that all throughout the world that there are people meeting in basements and houses and uh, where it's illegal to be a Christian, where it's illegal to open up the Bible and teach it. God, we thank you. Uh, for the freedoms we have here, Lord, we, we, we know we take them for granted, Lord, but we thank you. And so, Lord, we, we ask that you'd go before us this morning. As we start this new series in the book of Nehemiah, Lord, would you just be blessed by this, uh, Lord, as we go through it, as we give you our attention and our focus. And Lord, we ask that you would teach us, Lord, the things that we need to learn, Lord, from your word. Would you be so present and would your spirit just... Uh, invade our hearts and, and Lord, convict us and encourage us. And so, God, we just give you this morning, or this, I guess it's afternoon now, in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Uh, very, very excited for this morning for a handful of different reasons. And one of them is that we get to start a new series together. And I just want to encourage you guys. Uh, everyone, look at me. I want to encourage you guys. Uh, we're about to go through this series, and it's going to be a, a few months long, and we're going to dive into this book of Nehemiah, and I want you to take full advantage of it. Uh, I don't know, some of you I know bring your own notebooks. I'd encourage you, if you have not done that yet, uh, get a notebook specifically for church. Uh, get a notebook specifically for Nehemiah so that you can kind of track as we go, and um, I want to encourage you to dive into this. As we go through it, um, you know, give the Lord your attention on these, sun, on these Sunday mornings and uh, even throughout the week. Maybe go back and we reread uh, what we already went through and talked over. So I just want to encourage you guys, di dive into this, okay? So the, the title of the series that we're starting is Rebuild, okay? Rebuild. Anyone know where the book of Nehemiah is? Hopefully you guys are turning there or have already turned there. All right, it's in the Old Testament. Uh, it is before Psalms, so it's kind of be before that excuse me, that midpoint, and um, uh, building projects. What do you like? Building projects. Just a way of illustration to introduction to our series, okay? Uh, building projects can sometimes be intimidating. I am, I am not a general contractor, but I'm sure at times, uh, seeing a flat piece of land and then seeing, okay, there's a building that's going to go here from the ground up. I'm sure it can be intimidating, but I know what can even be more intimidating is seeing something that was, that was built uh, and then, you know, burned down or broken down, seeing the rubble, and then imagining how you're going to rebuild it. That, that would be even more intimidating. Uh, now, I know you guys weren't uh, born yet uh, when these towers were around, but I think you know what they are. Um, anyone know what these towers are? Uh, Twin Towers. Uh, what date comes to mind? 9-11, right? Uh, man, a, a, a day that 
hit America like you, you wouldn't believe. And I was only six years old at this time, and you guys, crazy, weren't even born yet. Has your parents talked to you about 9-11 at all? Learn about it in school? Do they teach you about it in school? I would, I would hope so. Um, amazing buildings, right? The center of the world to some extent, uh, the World Trade Center, the, the amount of things that went on. And then, as we know, those terrorists came and they attacked our country in this way. And uh, you can go to the next slide. I'm not sure if you've seen pictures of the rubble and the damage that was brought to uh, this city uh, was just insane. Um, and, and I want you to just put yourself in the people's shoes who were there the days after. And you go to the next slide. Um, think how overwhelming and intimidating that pile of rubble must have been. Uh, I mean, they, they spent days, right, looking for even missing people. And the amount of damage that this was, imagine them looking at that and seeing how overwhelming it must have been. Um, and yet, uh, because we're America, we cleaned it up and rebuilt, right? And now we have the One World Trade Center. Have you guys ever been to New York? Pretty amazing site. Um, it is now taller than actually, this building is taller than the Twin Towers were. And why do I, why do I bring this to, uh, to you guys in this beginning of the series? Well, the series is called Rebuilt. And you see, a theme that we're going to see throughout this book and really throughout the entire Bible is that God is a God of redemption. Everyone say redemption. Though God doesn't like to see things broken, he does love the opportunity to come in and, and rebuild, to redeem. And we see this from Genesis to Revelation that our God is a God of redemption. And, and it's amazing how God in our lives, he comes in and kind of invites us to, to rebuild. And, and it's just one of the things that we're gonna see throughout this story. But um, before we get into actual Nehemiah chapter one, uh, I gotta share with you guys some context, okay? I gotta share with you guys some um, kind of background to be, before we go, okay? So I'm, I'm down here because I want it to be a little more personal. I want this to be kind of like a storytelling time in a sense. You guys have, maybe have a grandpa that has told you like stories before? And you're like listening intently, right? And you're like sitting on the ground. I don't know. I have this in my mind. I, I don't have a grandpa that tells really good stories, but I feel hopefully you do. Uh, but hopefully this time can kind of bring some introduction to Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah, uh, this book that we come to, uh, to get the full picture of where we're at in chapter one, I need to give you guys a little bit of background. So you guys ready? So do not fade off in this time. You're going to need to Capture every detail of this so that you get the fullest extent of it, okay? You guys ready? You sure? I don't hear you guys. Okay, so God's people, who are they? Who were they? <laughs> who are they still? Okay, some trick questions. Okay, so Israel. Okay, I want you guys to think about Israel. And I know a lot of you guys have grown up in church and uh, you've heard a lot about children of Israel. And um, so I wanna start with them, okay? And the children of Israel were God's people. They still are. God's not done with them, as we see in the New Testament, um, that he's still going to fulfill his promises. But specifically in the Old, okay, we're going to travel back in time. And within the Old Testament, God began this nation. Maybe you guys can think of the Exodus. You guys know about the Exodus. Um, and God had made promises to his people. And one of the main promises was about a land that he had for them. Everyone say promised land. 
okay? The promised land was given to them, but they had not yet inherited at this time. And so then, right, God raises up Moses. They wander through the wilderness for a while, and now they're in the promised land. There's different kings that are, are raised up, and, and they're there. But the thing with the children of Israel, which is kind of similar to you and I, is that they like to disobey. They don't like it, but they just happen to do it because of their sin nature. And we see this pattern in the Old Testament time and time again, that God gives promises, that God gives commands, and guess who breaks them? Children of Israel. Um, And time and time again, we see that God raises up these kings, and some of them are evil, some of them are good. Um, And God gives them promises in the beginning. He says, okay, if you follow me, if you keep my commandments, then I'm going to bless you. I'm going to prosper your nation. You're going to be more blessed than any other nation on earth. But if, if you depart from me and you begin to worship other gods and you begin to rebel against my commandments, then I'm going to have to bring judgment. And the way that God had told them from the very beginning that he was going to bring judgment was to remove them from their land, to take back the promised land and to scatter them around the world. That was going to be their punishment. And so guess who God sent time and time again uh, to warn them? Does anyone know their names or what we would title them as? prophets, right? God would raise up these men, give them a message, and then they were to go to Israel and say, okay, guys, you're messing up, and God's, his, his wrath is beginning to grow, and so you have to turn from your sin. And sometimes they would heed it a little bit, meaning they would listen to the warning that the prophets gave. But most of the time, they wouldn't listen They would end up actually killing the prophets, the messengers who God would send. They would end up killing them because they didn't like what they were saying. And this happened time and time again until a certain point. You see, God only deals with, he he gives a lot of grace, a lot of mercy, but there's a time where judgment has to come. You guys know that about God? It's going to come. And when he when, when the tribulation periods happens and uh, Jesus returns, that there's this point where God says, enough is enough. And so for Israel, there came this point, okay? Uh, it was about, you know, they were in their land for hundreds of years, but then there came this point. And so at this point, God does something. He raises up an evil nation and an evil king. Can anyone guess who this, what this nation is and who the king is? Yeah, Babylon. Anyone know the king's name? Someone else, yeah. Nebuchadnezzar. Everyone say Nebuchadnezzar. Kind of crazy word, right? I just like to call him Nebi for short because Nebuchadnezzar is a little too long. So King Nebi and the Babylons, they were actually evil people, but they were powerful. God had raised up this nation to go and conquer and take captive the children of Israel uh, as a way of punishment for them. You're like, wow, that's, that's harsh. Uh, this was after hundreds of years of giving warnings and uh, they, in a sense, knew it was coming. And so God raises up this, this nation, they attack Israel, and they take captive anywhere from two to three million Jews. And they bring them back to their homeland of Babylon, which is modern day Iraq. Okay, that's where the kind of location of it is. And so now they are there for the next 70 years. You can note that 70 years is an important thing. Uh, the last prophet to warn them before the judgment came was a guy named Jeremiah. You guys ever heard of him? Jeremiah is, one, is actually the biggest book in the Bible. 
uh, you think it is Psalms. Uh, Psalms is only by chapters, but actually word for word, Jeremiah is the largest book in the, in the Bible. And Jeremiah is the last prophet. So he is known as the weeping prophet. Why? Well, because he would warn and tell the Israelites, judgment's coming. God's raising up a king, like turn back and God will relent from his punishment. But they wouldn't listen. And so he saw his nation to which he was a messenger to go through a great attack against their nation and then this captivity. And so Jeremiah saw this, but what's, what verse comes to mind when you think of Jeremiah? Jeremiah 29, come on. Jeremiah 29, 11. I know you guys know this, okay? Jeremiah 29, 11, it'll be on the screen. You've heard this verse. It's for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you future and hope. It's an amazing verse. But I wanna give you the context to this verse. It's verse 10. Okay, verse 10, it's, this is directly talking about that time in captivity. He says, for thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you. And he begins to encourage them. You see, this was God's word to Israel, excuse me, Israel as they entered into the captivity. He said, okay, you're gonna be punished, but it will only be for 70 years. And you're like, wow, that sounds like a long time. It is a long time, but it's also not forever. And God told them said, and told them to hold on to this promise that 70 years in Babylon, I'm gonna come and I'm going to visit you and I'm gonna keep my promise to you and bring you back into Israel, okay? And God's good like that. He keeps his promises. And so 70 years pass. Uh, maybe you're familiar with the book of Daniel, Daniel and the lion's den. See, that whole book happens during this time of captivity. Sometimes the Bible can be kind of confusing. Would you guys agree? It can be. And sometimes it's, it's like, because the books don't go in progression, right? Meaning historically, they don't go, okay, one after another. And so one of the confusing things is that you, you can think, well, Daniel's after Nehemiah, so that takes place after. No, it takes place before. A lot of those little minor prophets and major prophets, like Ezekiel and some of those crazy names like Zechariah and Haggai, maybe you're familiar with them. Uh, all those are in between different historical times within Israel's history, okay? Are you guys following? You guys lost? Okay, so set, how long are they in the, in the captivity for? 70 years. And who are they under, who's their ruler at that time? You guys are doing good. And what's the nation called? Okay, do you guys know what happens to Babylon? Babylon is conquered by a certain nation. Do you guys know who it is? Persia. Man, this guy's on it today. I like it. Persia. Persia comes just like uh, um, Babylon came and took over Israel and then brought them all to their land. Now Persia comes and attacks Babylon and conquers them, kills the king and takes over the whole people. Okay, so now, now who is under or uh, who's over the Israelites at this time? Persia. So now Persia is the ruler. And then comes a guy named King Cyrus. Everyone say King Cyrus. You see, King Cyrus was a guy uh, who was prophesied about in the book of Isaiah by name, some 100 years beforehand. It's an, it's an amazing thing. I won't go into detail. But King Cyrus had um, showed the Jews favor. And how did he show them favor? Well, he showed them favor by, by doing a decree that said, okay, Jews, Israelites, 
I want you to take a group of you and go back to Jerusalem and begin to rebuild. Because Babylon absolutely destroyed. Destroyed the temple, destroyed the walls, the city that once was glorified, this incredible exalted city of Jerusalem has now for over 70 years been absolutely desolate, burned to the ground. But King Cyrus, for whatever reason, we know specifically because God put it in him to do this, he raises up these Jews and says, okay, I want you to go back and begin to rebuild. And so uh, this is where the book of Ezra starts, which Ezra is right before Nehemiah. And Ezra, um, we see there in the very first beginning chapters that there's this guy named Zerubbabel. Everyone says Zerubbabel. I don't have a nickname for him, so you can just call him Z, okay? A lot of names, I know. Zerubbabel goes and returns the first time to Jerusalem, okay? So he brings some 50,000 Jews out of the two to three million, uh, potentially even more at that time. And so now there's Jews in Jerusalem, and now there's Jewish people in Babylon still, and they're kind of separate. And they go back and they begin to rebuild, okay? They begin to rebuild the temple and to reinstitute the worship, but they get a lot of opposition. Do you know what opposition means? And a lot of people hated Israel and they came against them. As they came back and they began to rebuild, some people started living in that land surrounding. And so they started uh, opposing and, and, and um, not letting them rebuild. So later on in the book of Ezra, Ezra goes for the second return. Okay, he brings some people with them. And then we come to the point of Nehemiah. Okay? We come to this point of Nehemiah and we are now... And what Nehemiah will do will be the third and final return from Persia, Babylon area, back to Jerusalem, okay? So I know that's a lot. That's a lot of information, a lot of names. Uh, But hopefully you're able to consume some of that. And that will kind of lay our foundation here as we get into Nehemiah chapter one, okay? Remember, some people in Jerusalem, some people, including Nehemiah, still under the Persian rule, um, and then we come to this place. So just a couple things to note that are kind of cool. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, the book right before Nehemiah, they are one continuous book in the Jewish Bible. And so it's literally in the Jewish Bible would be referred to as First Ezra and Second Ezra. That was kind of funny. Um, Ezra is mentioned in Nehemiah later in the book. Um, but it's one, it's the same account. It's the same, um, you know, continuous story. Um, Remember, how long were they in captivity for? 70 years, okay? So when we come to Nehemiah chapter one, they have now been in captivity for 90 years. 20 years has passed since that first um, uh, people under Zerubbabel came back to Jerusalem and began the slow rebuilding. And it has now been 160 years since they originally were put into captivity. And so Nehemiah, he's not that old. And so we know that he was born in captivity. He's never seen Israel. He's never been to Jerusalem. And we see him come to the story where uh, he was actually born into captivity, into, you know, this, um, into Babylon or Persia. And then here's just for you to know about the book of Nehemiah before we get into it. You can go to the next slide. Nehemiah chapter one through six Okay, there's 13 chapters in total. One through six has to do with rebuilding the walls. And then seven through 13 has to do with rebuilding the people. So that is a long way of introduction as we get into Nehemiah chapter one. Okay, you guys can write that down. And then in a second, they'll go to the next slide. But you guys ready? Any questions? 
All right, Nehemiah chapter one, and it is the year would be 40, uh, 445 BC. Uh, so this is about now a thousand years after Moses and about 400 years before Jesus comes. 445 BC is where we find Nehemiah chapter one. All right, you ready? Yes? Come on, talk to me a little bit, yes? All right, look at verse one and we'll go down to verse three. Okay, and we're going to see the title of now as we get into this is Nehemiah's Desire and Prayer. You see the, right, the series name is Rebuild. That will be the constant theme all throughout uh, our series. Uh, But the specific as Nehemiah chapter one is Nehemiah's Desire and Prayer. Verse one through three, we'll see that Nehemiah hears something. He gets some news. It says, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month of Shislev in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. Verse three. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and gates are burned with fire. So we see uh, the, the book begin to open up here in chapter one, that Nehemiah is the author, says, right, these were his words, and it's kind of cool. Uh, Nehemiah, no doubt, is now reflecting back on the events that took place uh, during this amazing time in his life, and so as we go through this, you know that, that Nehemiah is the one pinning this. He is the one writing down what had happened, and he kind of gives us, if you look at verse one, it says in the, in the month of some word we don't really, that you and I wouldn't know. And it says in the 20th year. Now don't think that this is only 20 years into like existence and creation, okay? It's not. Uh, 20th year is referring to the amount of years that the, the present king has been in power. All right, here's a, here's a question for you guys and I'll give a candy to anyone who gets it, Okay. Uh, I don't have it with me now, but it's in the snack bar for later, okay? Who is the current king that it's talking about right here within this 20 years of reign? Morgan. Nope. Close. Yeah. Nope, not Darius. Madden. Artaxerxes. Give Madden a round of applause. There we go. That's awesome. Okay, that was the weakest round of applause I've ever heard. Give a, give, come on, give him a high five. That's awesome. Good job, Madden. Come see me after service. So Artaxerxes, we see that in Nehemiah chapter two, verse one. So you could have cheated a little bit, um, but um, I don't know if Madden did or not. But we see that this is King Exerces at this time. This is his 20th year of reign. And it gives us also location. Do you guys see that in verse one? Where is Nehemiah at this time? Yeah. Yeah, kind of a crazy, crazy word, right? Shushan the Citadel. Uh, Shushan the Citadel was known as King Artaxerxes. It was the winter palace for the Persian kings. Uh, this was in a place where they would go during the winter time, and that, no doubt it was a fortified palace of some kind, uh, maybe some kind of castle-looking thing. But it's interesting because Nehemiah says this is where he's at, that he is at the king's palace. Uh, we find, if you look at the end of verse 11, uh, we get a little insight into Nehemiah's occupation. Does anyone know or want to look ahead to verse 11 and tell me what his occupation is? Yeah, 
cupbearer. He was the king's cupbearer. So that's why he is in the palace is because that's where he lives. That's where he works. That's where he lives. Uh, does anyone know what the cupbearer was to do? Yes, sir. Yeah, he's that guy, you know, that would be like kind of in the back, but kind of next to the king. And before the, the king were to drink, because his life was so precious, uh, and Nehemiah's wasn't as precious within the kingdom, right, that he would be, he would get the cup first of wine or water, whatever it might be, and he would drink it to make sure that it wasn't poisonous. So, right, they would, I mean, imagine this. Imagine the king's like, I'm thirsty. I'm like, Nehemiah's, okay, give me a second. Taste, you know, pours a drink, tastes it. Okay, Nehemiah is not dead. Okay, king, you can, you can have it now. Which to you, me, to you and I, it seems like, man, that's a terrible job, right? You're like, I wouldn't want that. People trying to like kill the king and you'd be the first to go. Uh, but in reality, this position that would be foreign to you and I is a, is a position that is prestigious and actually honorable. This is someone who the king would have to trust. This is someone who the king would have to have faith in to some extent. And think about it. This is someone who the king would have a relationship with. If they were with them every time the king wanted something to drink, which was no doubt how many times a day, Nehemiah was constantly by the side of the king. And when you spend time with people, you just build that kind of relationship. And so no doubt uh, Nehemiah had some sort of relationship with King Artaxerxes and some kind of uh, trust as well as the king's cupbearer. That will come back as we end today to make a lot more sense. But look at verse two. We read it a second ago. It mentions a guy named Hanani. Hey, Hanani, he says this, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. And so there's this, there's this group of people who were in Jerusalem, and then they came back to Persia for whatever reason, and they gave news of kind of what was going on. But do you see how it says Hanani, one of my brethren? And it sounds like, okay, he's just like, you know, one of, one of like, his brothers, like, like you would say, like, oh, you're my bro, right? Uh, but more specifically, this is talking about how Hanani is actually one of his brothers. Um, Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 2, uh, talks about how, no, Hanani is actually one of his brothers, like not just his bro, like one of his brothers, okay? Uh, so it's, it's family, older or younger, we don't know. Uh, but he comes back and Nehemiah's like, oh my gosh, Hanani, tell me everything. How is Jerusalem? I've heard stories. I remember mom and dad would tell us stories of how amazing Solomon's temple was and the walls and the glory of Jerusalem. How is it? You got to tell me. I've only heard stories. And unfortunately, Hanani has to be the bearer of bad news, the one who brings uh, a bad report. And I, you can notice though that Nehemiah asks about two different things here. He asks about God's people, and he asks about God's place. He wants to know, how are the people doing? How, is the, how are the walls? How is the temple coming along? How is everything going? And unfortunately, Hananiah has to tell him that God's people are in great distress and reproach. If you look at verse three, great, it, he describes them as being in great distress. It means that they're in, it's a disaster, basically that though they're trying to rebuild, that there's so much opposition and that the walls of the city, they're doing okay inside, they're building it up, the temple is coming along, things are starting to go, but they have no protection, that the walls that are surrounding the entire city are absolutely decimated. And so anyone who wants to come in can. They can rob, they can kill, and there's no, there's no protection. And so for you and I, you're like, well, okay, there's no walls. Like, it's not a big deal. Uh, back then, the nation's capital, 
and, and the nation was known for its walls, meaning like if they didn't have walls, they wouldn't really be a nation. They wouldn't, they have no protection. Uh, that was the, the point that would be the, uh, the thing that would make the enemy turn the other way. And so it says that they have, they're suffering reproach. It means shame and dishonor. And this is, this is some pretty bad news. Would you agree? And so Nehemiah's like, man, this is bad news. Have you guys ever gotten bad news before? Oh man, bad news is never fun, right? There's a man, you better sit down for this, right? Um, maybe it was the, the passing of a family member that, was, that your parents had to tell you about. A life is full of hard news. And for Nehemiah, he was, this hit him really hard, okay? That this news of how the people were doing, how the land was doing, uh, this became a burden and, a, and, and turned into a desire that I believe God put in Nehemiah, okay? We're gonna see that within these next uh, verses, the rest of the chapter, actually. And we see Nehemiah's response in verse four through 11. Look at verse four with me. You guys still in Nehemiah? Haven't turned anywhere? Okay. Not like paying attention, not like looking in the, in the maps in the back, right? I remember I used to do that like when I was really bored, right? You look in the maps in the back. Don't do that, okay? Nehemiah chapter one, look at verse four. It says, so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And then he begins a, for the rest of the chapter, is Nehemiah's prayer. It's very long, okay? So we're gonna go through it and just follow along in your Bible. Starting in verse five, he begins to pray to God and he says, and I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Verse six, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night for the children of Israel and your servants. And confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Verse 8. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations." But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Verse 11, O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Now that's a prayer. That's a pretty like hefty prayer, right? And we see that Nehemiah's response is prayer. He gets hit with the bad news and he responds with prayer, with serious prayer. And I want you to notice in verse four, we see five different ways that Nehemiah responds to this news. Okay, and I want you to, it will be on the screen. You can note them down. Number one, he sits down. And I don't think when it says he sits down that he found like some comfy couch and just relaxed on. No, I think he like sat on the ground. I mean, this was like, this was big news for him. And like how I mentioned a moment ago, you know how 
when, when someone's delivering bad news, they're like, man, you better sit down for this, right? That's when you know it's really coming. And so in a similar way, he, he sits down to, it says that he weeps. This was real. These weren't just like a couple of tears, but this was, this was real for him. This, this hit him in a certain way that I'm sure he wasn't even expecting. It says that he weeps. This was real and personal. Thirdly, it says, we see in verse four, that he mourns. He mourns for many days. You see, this wasn't for Nehemiah just something where he shed a couple tears about, he was sad about for just a moment, and then he's like, okay, I'm hungry now. <laughs> it wasn't like that. that. This hit him where this was days of, of, real, of him being real down, of him being real heavy for what he had heard. He mourned for many days. And then four and five, it says that he, he fasts and he prays, that he fasts and he prays. You see, this hit him real hard. That we see these five things, this progression of a kind of things that he begins to do, and he begins to fast. Uh, do you guys know what fasting means? Hey, uh, it, this wasn't just like uh, he wanted like a break from food. No, when it says fasting in this way, is that he committed to not eating for a time in his seeking of God. This was, this was for real. He, he prayed, and we, saw, we see that example in his prayer that this was a, one of those for real prayers. And he began to just weep. He began to think about Jerusalem and how the people were suffering there, maybe being stolen from and even being murdered, and there was no justice, and uh, whatever kind of news specifics that his brother came and, and gave him, uh, he began to weep over Jerusalem. And this is significant because uh, he would not be the only one to weep over Jerusalem. Does anyone else come to mind when you think of someone who wept over the city of Jerusalem? Maybe, maybe not. You guys remember Jesus did that in the New Testament? There's this moment uh, in the New Testament where Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. And it says that he looks over the, the magnificence of the city. But he knows what the people are like inside. And the Bible says that Jesus came and his own did not receive him. That there was this expectation of what Jerusalem should be and they should have received Jesus as their Lord and their Savior, but instead they crucified him because he knew the real condition of the city. And so in a, in a similar way, Nehemiah is here and he sees the, the condition of the city because he knows what it should be. He's heard the stories of Solomon's temple. He's heard the stories of how amazing Jerusalem once was Yet now, in a sense, unable to see it, he hears news of it. And I want to share with you a, a quote. It's by Alan Redpath. Okay, it's a, he's an old saint, awesome pastor and teacher. He says this, Nehemiah was called to build the wall, but first he had to weep over the ruins. And this is significant that we're going to see within our weeks to come that Nehemiah is going to be uh, in a sense, commissioned to go and build the wall. But don't miss chapter one. Don't miss the pain that Nehemiah really went through, that this was a burden. But I believe it was a heaviness that God had put in him, that this was a burden that God had done in Nehemiah, because this is how God works. Everyone look at me. This is how God works. That before he calls someone into service, there is a burden, there is a heaviness that is put on their very soul. Something that they probably wouldn't even be able to describe, that Nehemiah wouldn't be able to describe. And we see this. 
throughout the Bible on, on numerous times, this, this burden or this, this heaviness. We see it in Isaiah chapter six, before Isaiah is commissioned uh, into a whole new way of, of serving God, that there's this overwhelming heaviness to him. And then we see him spring into action, into service in a sense. And before God calls us to rebuild, he first puts in us a very real sense of heaviness. This is what he does before he works. And this is where some application comes in for you and I. See, there are things in our lives that are broken down and burned. There's, in a sense, walls in our lives that are broken down and burned, whether in our personal life or even in what we see around our family, around our church. And think about what kind of walls might be broken. I want you to think for your life. I want, I want the Holy Spirit to give, an, I want to give him an opportunity to speak to you before I give you maybe a couple examples of an application. Think about your life. Okay? What in your life would you describe as broken and burned down? As something that should be, in a sense, like a wall that's built up, strong, fortified, but it's not how it should be. Is it a wall of your devotion life? Where it should be strong and fortified, but you've been lacking in that area? Is it a wall of, of maybe your witness to your friends that you've blown? What about within your family? Is, are there things that, that there's just, there are things that are broken down? Maybe not even your fault, but the things that are broken down. What about within our church? Are there things that should be a certain way, but just simply aren't? See, the way God begins to, before he commissions the work of the rebuilding, he always puts a sense and a burden of heaviness. And once Nehemiah wept, though, then he began working. I want you to write that down. Once Nehemiah wept, then he began working. And I don't mean working with his hands. He didn't run to Jerusalem and begin to build, but he did what was necessary and is necessary for anything that God is about to do. He gives the, the heaviness, he gives the burden, and then you and I and our job is to respond to that heaviness within us when we see something that is broken down that should be built and our response should be prayer as it was Nehemiah's. Notice in verse four when it says that he fasted and prayed specifically before the God of heaven. He didn't fast for no reason. He didn't pray to any God. It was specifically before the God of heaven. And Matthew 7, 7 says this in the New Testament. Jesus says to his disciples, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And this is in regards to how we should pursue God in prayer. And it's awesome because for the rest of the chapter, this is what Nehemiah does. That there are, there's more verses of just Nehemiah's prayer than there is verses uh, not about his prayer in this chapter. Verses five through 11, we see, and it records his prayer. And we're not gonna go through every, every detail or every word and break down his, his, his prayer one by one, but we do get an amazing insight into something. You guys listening? We get an, an insightful um, revelation here in Nehemiah's prayer that will be useful to us throughout the entire book. And something we need to remember is that Nehemiah knew Jesus. Not, I mean, he knew the Lord, right? 
He knew God, and it is clear from his prayer. But isn't it true that usually from someone's conversation, you can tell their relationship? I know Haley and I will do this sometimes. We'll be in like a restaurant, and you know, we're talking, and then we're like eating. But then we kind of look over, and we're like, wonder what, wonder what their story is. Is that like brother and sister? Is that like mom and son? Is that a husband and wife? Don't tell me you guys don't do the same, right? You, 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 kind, of, you kind of gauge other people, right? And you're like, okay, what's, what's their relationship? And usually by the way that they talk to one another, or even if you're maybe a little bit closer to a situation, you're overhearing something, you can tell where it's like, okay, that's definitely his wife. That's definitely her husband, or that's definitely his mom. And by their conversation, and by the way that they communicate, you can not only tell the relationship, but how good the relationship is, right? Where you can be like, and I know <laughs> this happens where, you know, maybe there's an older couple and, and you're like, oh, he's so sweet to her. Like he's opening the door and he's communicating with her. And then sometimes you're like, he's so mean to her, right? And you're like, I wonder what it's like at home. Don't tell me you're not the only one, okay? Or I'm not the only one. And you can begin to tell someone's relationship by the way that they communicate. And so you and I get something that was a private prayer between Nehemiah and God. And we get this insight, Nehemiah knew God that this was not his first rodeo, that this was not the first time he prayed. He, was not a, a, he wasn't new to this whole thing. You see, someone who doesn't pray, doesn't pray prayers like this. This is a man who has had a relationship with God and is going to continue that relationship. You can put on the screen uh, the next slide. I want you guys to see how many times in the book of Nehemiah that he prays. Uh, these are all the different verse references. You can note them down if you would like. Something so cool about Nehemiah that is this theme is Nehemiah's prayer life, is that there's these moments as he goes, and, and I'm excited to get into it for the, the, the weeks to come, but as he gets into actually rebuilding the wall, and there's some crazy stuff that happens, there's these moments where without context, or not with context, but without like it saying, and then Nehemiah prayed, Nehemiah just records what kind of prayer he prayed in that moment. It is super cool, and we'll see that as we get into it. But he, the book starts with prayer, and it also ends with prayer in the 13th chapter. And so there's a lot here in this prayer, but I just want to give you four things as we kind of start landing the plane today. I want to give you four things that you and I uh, should take from a Nehemiah's prayer, Okay. Four things I want to note and that you and I can learn from for our own prayer life and um, kind of his example, okay? You guys ready for him? Okay. You guys aren't ready for him? Should I wait? Okay. <laughs> First one that we see in the beginning of Nehemiah's prayer is that he declares who God is. This is so cool. And this is so important within prayer. And we see that he gets right off the bat. He says, in verse 5, he says, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy. And he begins to describe who God is and declare who he is. He says, you are the God of heaven. You are great and you are awesome and you keep your promises. And this is such an amazing way. This is how we should start prayer. That whenever we come to God, before we get to the request, before we get to the things that we need, this is such a good thing to put in practice that we say, God, you are the creator of earth and just whatever might come to your minds. God, you are good. You are faithful. God, you don't lie. 
God, you care about me? And whatever it might be, you just begin to declare and describe who God is. Because when you do that, and we see this in Nehemiah's prayer, it sets the tone for the rest of the prayer. That when you begin to ask for things, instead of like asking God, like, ah, God, if you're able to give me wisdom, then I would like some. Instead, when you say, no, wait, God's the creator. He's the king of kings, Lord of lords. He's all powerful. He's almighty and he loves me. God, you say in your word that you'll give me wisdom. God, then I want it. God, I need wisdom from you. And you'll pray with a confidence and a boldness and it's awesome. And we see this, no doubt, from Nehemiah's prayer. So number one, he declares who God is. Number two, he confesses sin. And this is something extremely important in prayer. This is something that has to come before the request. And it's that moment to get right with God. It's that moment to say, God, I've messed up. God, I, I sinned and I ask for your forgiveness. And we see Nehemiah does that. He doesn't just take responsibility for his own sins, but he says, me and my entire nation, we've, we've sinned against you, God. You were right to put us in captivity. But he doesn't stop there. He confesses sin. And then I think my favorite point Number three is that he begins to quote scripture. He begins to quote scripture. If you look down in verse seven and, and eight and nine and, and around there, he begins to uh, say kind of, there's two things. He says, God, we know that you told Moses, if we rebel, if we worship other gods, that you were gonna bring judgment. But the other thing that we know that you told Moses was that if we come back, if we return, then you will bless us. Then you will bring us back to be a nation. And so God, I'm cashing this promise in. God, I'm taking your word and God, you said this. I'm taking your words and I'm asking God that you would come through right now. On behalf of me and my nation, you said that after 70 years, you would bring us back if we return to you and we begin to obey. God, we are here, we're your servants. And he begins to cash in this promise of God. And this is awesome. And this is what you have to start learning to do in prayer if you're not doing it already. You don't know what to pray? Just begin to pray scripture. That, to begin to pray, God, I'm coming to you in prayer. And you say in your word that if I draw near to you, you'll draw near to me. And so God, I'm expecting you to do that. I'm expecting you to be here. God, this is what your word says. And so, and, and in a sense, we're to, we're to take God's word and say, God, this is what you said. And we're be, to begin to pray that because we know then we're praying the right thing, right? It's awesome. Fourth and finally, he, he requests specifically and strategically. He requests specifically and strategically. See, the thing that he requested, look at verse 11. This is when he begins to really request what he wants, he says, oh Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let, this is his request. Let your servant prosper this day and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And it's kind of twofold to this. First, he says, God, I want to prosper. God, would you prosper me? I'm like prosper, it means, would you advance me? Would you bless me, God? And this is a good prayer for you and I to pray. Like that song that we sung, right? If God is a good, good father, then wouldn't he want to bless us? So it's not a selfish prayer. That is a good thing to pray. God, I need your blessing. God, I need, I need you to, to prosper me. 
and he takes advantage of that. But then he, spray, he, he prays specifically. Look at the last part. He says, he says, grant him mercy in the sight of this man. When he says him, he's talking about himself. Who do you think he's talking about when he says, grant me mercy in the sight of this man? Who is this man that he's talking about? What do you guys think? There's the hint in the sentence that follows. Look at verse 11. Yeah, don't know. No, say, with the, say with boldness, the king. He's talking about the king. Then Nehemiah is asking God, would you grant me favor in the sight of the king? Why is he praying that? See, remember, what was Nehemiah's occupation? What was his job? Cupbearer. So how could Nehemiah in Persia, the cupbearer to the king, with him every day, how could he go to Jerusalem and begin to build a wall? See, that's only if the king would allow him to go. And you see, Nehemiah, he goes above the king's head in the greatest way possible. He goes to the king of kings and he says, God, would you speak to this king and tell him to let me go? It's awesome. That's a, that's a very specific and strategic prayer to pray. But this is good, that God is able to do anything. The Bible says that he's able to take the rules of kings and those who rule, and he can turn their decisions like rivers of water, the Bible says, that we need to pray specifically. See, any great work of God always begins with the people of God in prayer. I want you to write that down. Any great work of God always begins with the people of God in prayer. Every time. Every time God wants to do something, he starts here. That's why Nehemiah chapter one is in the Bible. That's why Nehemiah didn't skip over it. This is why it was important for him. And this includes rebuilding of this, this great city. This concept comes when rebuilding this, this, these walls, but also comes when starting a church, starting a ministry, or doing an outreach, or doing the small things, or even in those things in our lives, rebuilding the walls. It doesn't come first without the burden and then moving to the prayer. And this, uh, to tie in Jesus one more time, uh, Jesus was this way as well. When Jesus knew that the cross was coming and had this hard news that he knew about, what did he do? He prayed. It says that he watched and he prayed and the disciples though fell asleep in that garden of Gethsemane that Jesus prayed and that he prayed seriously, he prayed intentionally, and this was all before the cross. And so, as we just conclude today, this is only the beginning. This burden, this prayer. But this is the only place that we can start. With that burden, that heaviness, that desire, and then prayer. This is where God starts. And so, if you want God to work in your life, then you ask him, God, would you show me? Would you put a heaviness within my soul in the areas of my life that are either my doing or someone else's doing, what needs to be rebuilt? So I'm gonna ask you that question again. What in your life needs rebuilding? See, God is a God of redemption and God is a God of rebuilding. What walls are broken down? See, for Nehemiah, when he realized that the walls were broken down, he was wrecked over it. And you and I, we should be wrecked over our sin and we should be wrecked over the things that aren't the way that they should be. And we should, we should begin to ask God for favor to begin to rebuild those things. 
You see, this was no small task for Nehemiah. We're gonna go over it in the months to come of how this whole thing plays out. Uh, but it, was a, it, it is gonna be a successful one. The walls will be built. Um, and, and that's because it started in prayer. Guaranteed. So let's pray. God, we come before you and we love you. God, we thank you for this time in your word. And uh, Lord, was, today was a lot. There's a lot of information and history and Bible, Lord, would all that stuff just be hidden in our heart? Lord, would, would you speak to us about these things? And as we go throughout our week, would you remind us of the truths and, and would we apply them today? God, your word is good and your word is, is life and a light and a lamp to our feet. And so as we go throughout our week, would you guide us? Would you begin to, I pray for each and every person here, would you begin to burden them or put a heaviness in them for broken walls, things that are in their life that, that shouldn't be broken, that shouldn't be torn down. And I pray that you would do a new work in us of rebuilding and redemption. God, we need you. In Jesus' name, amen.